In the name of God, creator, redeemer, and giver of life. Amen. Good morning. So here we are again, 11 dead at last count in another mass shooting. Even worse, uh, another mass shooting in a place of worship, the third, I believe, in as many years. Again, unspeakable violence has desecrated a house of prayer. And again, we are nearly speechless with grief and anger, sorrow and futility. Once again, the talking heads are lining up for their airtime, politicians, opinion makers, pastors. And we are so familiar with this wretched ritual that we know what they're going to say before they even say it. We listen with disbelief. We fight off despair. And we ask yet again, what can be done? We should be doing something. We know that. We can't go on like this. But what should be done? You know, sometimes when tragedy strikes, we, we search for answers before we've really dug into the deeper questions. Sometimes when the pain of this world overwhelms us, when, when, when it's just too much to bear, we rush to our comfort zone. Solutions, answers, policies, petitions to sign. Anything to keep our grief and our sorrow at arm's length. Anything to avoid that swamp of feelings. When I was serving as a hospital chaplain, I saw this a hundred times. A loved one is dying, the family is gathered around the bed, prayers are said. And then, lest we be overwhelmed by the tide of sorrow, there's this rush to get things done. Make the funeral arrangements, order the death certificates, pick a fight over the inheritance. That's a good one. Anything to keep the tsunami of grief from rushing in. On the larger stage of our national trauma, there are always those folks eager to offer us what we desperately want, which is distraction. They step in after a tragedy to motivate the base, build the movement, pass the legislation, which is important. Don't get me wrong. We need politics. We need policy solutions. We need activists calling for change. But sometimes it seems to me we're a little too quick to channel our grief into activism, demonizing those who disagree with us, using our opinions like a stick as we once again reduce the world to the comforting binaries of you and me, us and them, good and bad, right and wrong, and we forget to actually take a moment to breathe in our sorrow and our pain, which is too bad because right now, in this simple acknowledgement of our sorrow, this is the only time when we actually allow ourselves to feel connected to the entire human family. In an age of increasing tribalism and division, this is the one moment when we can connect beyond tribe, 
or ideology or identity. Because every person on this planet knows this sorrow. This is the moment when we might find ourselves connected to the universal human experience. This is the moment when we might just join our voices to the great cry of humanity, which since the beginning of time has issued the simplest of prayers at times like this, which is simply, Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. And that is why we are here this morning. There will be time enough for opinions and politics and judgments. But before we rush off to fix our brokenness, we might just take a moment simply to admit our brokenness. Like Bartimaeus in our gospel reading this morning, there are moments when our desperation gets the better of our decorum and we finally allow ourselves be, to become beggars of God's mercy. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Some years ago, my older brother Chris was diagnosed with an aggressive form of brain cancer. He was living in Taipei, Taiwan at the time. And so I flew out there along with my dad and one of my sisters to be with him for his surgery. One day while we were waiting to go into the intensive care unit, another family came into the waiting room. It was about eight or 10 people, all of them Chinese, of course. At least three generations were there, including a couple of quite elderly women. And the room was small and the seating was limited, so my father and I stood up to offer them our seats, which they politely refused. And we, of course, refused to sit back down. So we all ended up just standing around, awkwardly staring at the floor and the walls and those two empty seats over there. It was just like being back in Minnesota where we were all being so quiet and polite. After a time, we exchanged a few friendly glances and then a young man in their group who spoke a tiny amount of English asked me where I was from. And I said, California. And they all recognized that word and they repeated it. Oh, California, California. And then someone said, surfing. And everyone laughed, just like that. And then having exhausted our shared vocabulary, we grew silent again. After a few minutes, I noticed one of the daughters in the corner weeping quietly. That was the sum total of the words we exchanged. I don't know if they were Christians or Buddhists or what, but in that silence, I knew we were sharing the same prayer. Lord, have mercy. We could have been monks at that moment or beggars by the side of the road silently chanting that universal prayer. So when, when Bartimaeus, the blind beggar, gets his chance for mercy, he takes it 
He shouts out his chance. He no longer cares about propriety. Everyone tells him to pipe down, but he shouts out his prayer all the louder. Son of David, have mercy on me. And then Jesus stands still. This is the moment of connection in the stillness. And then Jesus speaks to one of his disciples and the disciple goes to the beggar and says, take heart, he's calling for you. That is when it happens, I think. This is when he finds his healing in the sorrow and the grief expressed, followed by the stillness and the connection. And then, and this is my favorite part, immediately Bartimaeus leaps up and throws off his cloak. He's exposed and he has no shame. He's broken past the constraints of ego. A lifetime of begging on the streets has emptied him of any pretensions of status or pride or self-sufficiency, even self-consciousness. He is naked now, running to Jesus. The story, I think, is, is meant as a beautiful illustration of what prayer is about and also is meant as a kind of contrast to the story found earlier in that same chapter in Mark, the story of the rich young man who approaches Jesus and asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He's the very opposite of Bartimaeus. He's rich, he's strong, he's beautiful in his velvet and silk clothes, completely confident in his ability to meet any challenge, open any door. His language is the language of privilege and ownership. Salvation to him is just another thing to acquire, is something he thinks he can inherit. He doesn't ask for mercy. He doesn't need healing of any kind. Just point the way, he says, full of confidence and competency. Tell me what to do and I'll do it. So when Jesus says, well, you know, it's easy, actually. Just take everything that you own and sell it and give the money to the poor and follow me, be a homeless beggar on the streets, the rich young man immediately does the opposite of the blind beggar. Rather than throwing off his cloak and following Jesus, he clings even more tightly to his cloak. He takes a step back and he withdraws into a world of emptiness. Tellingly, for all of his riches, history will never remember his name whereas the blind beggar's name, Bartimaeus, will live on forever. My brother died almost exactly a year after that day of surgery. For all of our earnest praying, there was no miracle for him. If by miracle we mean a suspension of the laws of physics and chemistry for the sake of sparing us our grief. If you had come to me with a story about Bartimaeus during that time, I would have very politely silenced you. My brother has just died, I would have said. Spare me your precious miracle stories. But looking back on that time now, what I remember more than anything else 
was the way we were enveloped in a fabric of love. How connected we became through our prayers. How all the childhood resentments, all the old wounds of sibling competition, all the pure Minnesota coolness and reserve just melted away. Cast aside like Bartimaeus's cloak. How we held one another, how we listened, how we confessed our regrets and begged for forgiveness and blessed one another as death made its approach. How we each, in other words, became bearers of God's mercy to one another. I used to think that wasn't enough. I used to blame God for his failure to deliver on his promise of miracles. I used to dread having to preach on these healing stories because they seemed fraudulent to me. But over the years, as both my riches and my youth have disappeared, I've come to realize how my opinion about these stories is actually just another way in which I distance myself from God's mercy. How my expectations for God and yet another example of my entitlement and my privilege as if I were entitled to a miracle. Meanwhile, the miracle was happening all around me and still is. The miracle of this love that joins us one to another across all lines of division. The miracle that is this love right here in this room, right here with each breath, right here as our hearts and minds are open to this unifying grace. Because sometimes it's not the miracle that is God's mercy. Sometimes it's the simple mercy that is God's miracle. Amen.